0: Hey, I'm Tom Power. I'm the host of the podcast Q with Tom Power, where we talk to all kinds of artists, actors, writers, musicians, painters. We had Green Day on the other day talking about their huge album, American Idiot. Nicole Byer came on to talk about ADHD and comedy. And then there's Dan Levy. While we were talking about filmmaking, we talked about his insecurities. I sometimes feel like I have this desire to like perform, to be a version of myself that people might like. Listen to Q with Tom Power to hear your favorite artists as they truly are wherever you get your podcasts. This is a CBC Podcast. Hi, I'm Dr. Brian Goldman. Welcome to The Dose. Canada and many other parts of the world are lifting restrictions and trying to move on from COVID-19. But some of us aren't quite ready to ditch the mask and other pandemic measures. So this week we're asking, after two years of COVID-19 restrictions, how do I navigate a world with fewer of those restrictions. Hi, Stephen. Welcome back to The Dose. Thanks very much, Brian. Um, So how did it feel eating at a restaurant since restrictions were lifted where you live?
1: Well, initially I looked around and I said, there's something unusual here. And um, first off, there was the crowds and the absence of the the Perspex dividers. It it felt um, a little unusual at first, but my wife and I gradually or actually quickly um, adjusted to it. But it was surprising at first to to do that
0: so does that make you a middle of the road reactor or uh, like uh, on the spectrum from very skittish to to quite confident about reentering the world
1: i I, I guess i'm more on the confident side, but you know i'm not i don 't think i 'm overly confident. I remember when the masks were uh, mandate was let up last year, and I remember getting into an elevator, and I didn't have a mask on, and everyone else had a mask on, and I thought, well, this is weird. Um, should I not be wearing a mask? Should I put one on? So um, I'm confident, but not overly confident.
0: So we're going to hear about all kinds in just a moment, but before we begin, can you give us a hi, my name is, tell us what you do and where you do it, just ad lib.
1: Yeah, hi, I'm Dr. Stephen Taylor. I'm a professor and clinical psychologist in the Department of Psychiatry at UBC,
0: Okay, here we go. As provinces lift many of the restrictions, what are you noticing in people's behaviors and attitudes when you're out and about?
1: I'm noticing um, what we thought we would see from the very beginning, that that people just bounce back. Most people are resilient, probably more resilient than people recognize they are. And so, for example, last weekend, I was walking along a seawall with my wife. It was so crowded and no one was wearing a mask. It looked like we were back to pan- pre-pandemic levels. The playgrounds were filled with children and parents. It was really actually nice to see. Now, that's not to say everyone is feeling safe and bouncing back, but certainly the crowds were out there this weekend.
0: So uh, let's, let's talk about you know, the, the complete lifting of restrictions versus partial lifting of restrictions and that impact on people's behaviours. For instance, BC still requires masks in some places and, and has uh, vaccine cards how much do measures like, like those help people navigate the move to a world with fewer COVID restrictions?
1: I think a gradual um, easing of restrictions helps people gradually get back to, to where they were before. If you just suddenly lifted all the restrictions, that transition would be quite stressful for some people, particularly the people... Who, who are worried about getting infected, and that, that might be very difficult for them. So I think when you, you ease things, you ease up one thing, you ease up, say, restaurants, or then, then ease up masks, it allows people to slowly um, return to how things were before.
0: So let's talk about how to navigate a world with fewer restrictions. What are the criteria we should use, for instance, when we're going out to restaurants and other indoor spaces?
1: Well, I guess the obvious first criteria, criterion is to pay attention to what the current health guidelines are. But then the second important thing is pay attention to yourself. How comfortable are you? Ultimately, it's a question of your own risk tolerance. And if you don't feel safe, let's say mask-wearing mandates had been lifted, but you don't feel safe for, for whatever reason, I think it's okay that you wear a mask if you want to until um, you start to feel safer.
0: You know, so we're talking about our own personal behavior, but many people who are listening are parents of kids who are going back to school where restrictions are being lifted. So how about kids going to schools in provinces where those mask requirements have been lifted?
1: Well, I guess it depends on a case by case basis and parents ideally would know their kids well and would know when their child is feeling very anxious about not wearing their mask. And perhaps the first step would be to talk with them to um, get an understanding of what their concerns are or, the, or the, their issues are. And perhaps um, if your child is very, very anxious, some simple encouragement can help. Um, if they're, they're insisting on wearing their mask for the first little while back going back to school, and if that creates no problems, and, then why not let them do that? It, it's a, a little bit like having um, a source of safety with you that you gradually relinquish.
0: Is there a greater issue when it comes to kids that they might get some peer pressure, some teasing that they're still wearing masks when, when most of the other kids have, have gotten rid of their masks?
1: Very much so. I think we should never underestimate the power of peer pressure. In fact, a a personal anecdote, the only way my children eat green vegetables was it had nothing to do with my efforts to get them to eat green veggies. It it was all due to peer pressure, their peers being interested in novel foods and so forth. So if children are back at school and and their peer groups, none of them are wearing masks, they're going to feel that pressure to comply with that. Sometimes that's not a bad thing if it helps kids to adjust or other times it creates more anxiety. So we need to take that on a case by case basis as
0: well. Regarding peer pressure, how do you deal with a child who wants to keep their mask off at school, but you still want to, you still want them to keep it on?
1: <laughs> that's, that's a good question. Um, there may not be a lot you can do. You're telling your, let's say your 14 year old that he or she should be wearing a mask at, at, at school, and uh, they put it on when they leave and take it off when they get to school. I don't know. You might find it that, that as a parent, you do have limited control over those sorts of things, and if if it's not enforced at the school, then my guess is there's not a lot you can do.
0: You know, um, I used to be a regular movie goer. I, I used to go to to the cinema once a week, and now. Mm. I have no interest in going to the cinema and and that makes me wonder how long it takes for a temporary change in behavior to become permanent.
1: Mhm. Well, again it depends on the individual but we know from past pandemics and outbreaks that, that, by and large, most people do bounce back and, and resume doing the things they used to do. Uh, I think a, a really telling example came from the Spanish flu. Um, in between the first and the second wave, the restrictions were lifted. And there are, I remember one particular news article from Boston from 19, um I think it was 1919, uh, they lifted the restrictions and the cinemas were flooded with people. People just couldn't wait to get back. But, you know, that was in between the first and the second wave and that flooding back to the cinemas uh, probably was one factor in precipitating a second wave. But we know from past pandemics that that things like wearing masks, washing your hands, using hand sanitizer, all those things drop off after over time. And quite rapidly in some cases, pe- most people stop doing those things and resume their lives. Now, you know, pandemics don't end at the same point for everyone. You know, the social ending for some people can be later than for others. So there will be some people who it takes them a little while longer to get comfortable about going out. Out to cinemas and indeed in Wuhan there are anecdotal reports in late 2021 when all the restrictions were lifted that they, they did identify some people who'd been housebound for months who had not come out after the lockdown restrictions had been lifted because they were too anxious so that gets to the point that we're really not going to see the full impact of COVID-19 probably until after all these restrictions have been lifted and then we'll get a better um, understanding of who is not Bouncing back from this pandemic,
0: and you know it's it's interesting uh, because you know you, you just cited an example of the the flu pandemic of a century ago, uh, which of course came in different waves, and that suggests to us that that there were different variants. And of course, we're seeing all these variants. We've seen Omicron. We did a show a few weeks mm-hmm. ago about the sub variant of Omicron, and I wanted to ask you how much. Does the lifting of restriction levels affect people's comfort when a new variant arrives? Do they feel like they've been had? And uh, what impact does that have on their willingness to to get rid of restrictions again?
1: Well, I think it depends on two things. One is the person's expectations. If we're being um, led to believe um, or, or given the message that, okay, we will, we will see new variants, but chances are they will be perhaps more virulent but but less deadly then people might be uh, less likely to become alarmed when a new variant comes along because there's new variants of everything coming up all the time however um, the problem with new variants is it, it fuels uncertainty and uncertainty is one of the big stresses of pandemics and the uncertainty begins even before a pandemic starts and so for people who have a, a very great deal of difficulty tolerating uncertainties in their lives, um, they tend to worry a lot anyway. So if you introduce new variants, that can fuel uncertainties and thereby fuel anxiety um, among some people.
0: You know, it's, it's an interesting thought for for much of the first part of the pandemic um, there was a kind of an attitude across society that was coming from, from public health, coming from experts, from physicians, and other healthcare providers that we should try to avoid getting infected with COVID at all costs. And of course, Mm -hmm. as you've just mentioned, you kind of anticipated my question, you're talking about uh, increasingly virulent uh, variants of of COVID that aren't particularly deadly. So should we accept, should the public be conditioned to the notion that that we might get COVID, you know, just as Queen Elizabeth, as we speak, Mm -hmm. is infected with, with COVID and we hope she makes a speedy recovery?
1: Right. Well, I think communities are going to look to their health authorities or their leaders. So Anthony Fauci, I think, said recently that he expects that most people will get COVID. And, um, you know, personally, uh, a couple of weeks ago, I came down with the Omicron COVID which was like COVID light. It was three days of flu-like symptoms and I was good to go, I was fine. I mean, I was lucky I didn't get COVID classic, which, which is much more severe. So if we're being faced with a coronavirus, which we're being told is generally not that severe for most people, then I think people would be able to cope with that or, or face it without undue anxiety, at least for most
0: people. So I guess the, what that sounds like is is it's a way of dealing with people's worst fears. You know, some people fear snakes and spiders and some people fear getting onto a plane or getting into crowded spaces and they can be guided through uh you know by 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 kind of dealing cognitively with the worst case scenario and and that might include a fear of getting covid. Am I right?
1: Yes, that's true, but, but it would need to be done carefully. You would need to consider the, the, the specifics of the situation or the person's um, medical history, for example, for, for some people, immunocompromised people or, or people with the frail um, elderly, for example, it might be quite dangerous for them to get COVID. So we, we shouldn't be cavalier. We should consider what does it mean for a particular person to get infected?
0: So for people who are immunocompromised and others who may be more vulnerable to COVID, they may feel more anxious about, about the reopening in general compared to to people who don't have those risk factors. So what do we know about their risk tolerance?
1: We know from um, research on chronic diseases prior to COVID that, that some people develop a risk tolerance of their own to, to living with a chronic disease, but other people become concerned or anxious, and their anxiety does have a, a very large grain of truth to it. So they have to navigate their world in a way that balances safety with living their lives. And I think that the best way to, to do that is on a personal basis, discuss whatever issues or, or concerns with your, your healthcare provider to get sound advice on that.
0: Hi, I'm Paul Havershude, host of The Cost of Living. It's a show about money and how it shapes our lives in big ways. Like, why inflation could get worse if we all make more money. Here's the hard truth in all of this. Workers are going to have to eat that real wage loss. And small ways. Like, what's the fastest way to order fast food? That first Big Mac that comes out of the kitchen is going to the drive-thru. Check out The Cost of Living. We're on CBC Listen or wherever you get podcasts. How should people help or support those who may take longer to feel comfortable, say, in a restaurant or inside without a mask, for example?
1: I, I think what we need to do is cut people some slack, is um, give, give people the time they need to reemerge. Um, don't think you're doing anyone any favors by going up to strangers in the street and telling them to take off their masks. They don't need them. You might think you're doing the right thing, but you have no clue about the person's situation they might wear a mask because they're they're suffering from an anxiety disorder or they're medically compromised or for whatever reason i would say leave people be and let them emerge at their at their own time
0: I you know we've been talking about people in general but I but I want to talk about those who have had covid and perhaps even those who've had a loved one with covid and have seen up close just how difficult an infection it can be and in some cases unfortunately a deadly infection how does that proximity to the covid experience itself affect their ability to shrug off restrictions
1: It makes it a lot harder to shrug it off, and it really brings the pandemic home at a personal level. For, I guess, many people, COVID-19 has an unreal quality to it, where you get all your information via the internet or on your laptop. You don't see corpses in the street. You don't see coffins or hearses. Um, But that changes very much if you know someone who's died from COVID, particularly a loved one, or you've had... um, uh, about of it yourself. Um, there, there are a couple of concerns here. One is if you've had a family member, a close family member, who's died from COVID, and you're bereaved. About one in 10 people develop prolonged grief disorder, which is a chronic grief disorder. Um, I guess it resembles in some ways like a mood disorder, but it doesn't go away by itself or it tends not to. You need um, to see a mental health professional. It is treatable, but, but that's a concern there for people who've lost loved ones. Because the other concern is that, People um, who've developed COVID, who've developed long COVID, or who've had traumatic experiences as a result of getting COVID. For example, being put in the ICU, thinking that you're going to die. Those people are at risk for developing anxiety disorders or related disorders such as post-traumatic stress disorder. And again, the concern there is those disorders can be chronic if they're not treated. They are very treatable, but um, if, if they're not treated, then they can persist in the aftermath.
0: So how do you treat uh, somebody with an experience like that? How do you treat somebody who, who has a strong anxiety reaction to the lifting of restrictions?
1: Um, well, there, there are a bunch of, of treatments available, but I guess the, the first step is it really starts with the individual. They need to ask themselves, is my anxiety creating a problem in my life? You know, um, it, am I unable to fulfill my job responsibilities? Am I unable to... Um, be an effective parent? Is my quality of life really impaired? If the anxiety is getting in the way with your life and it seems to be excessive, if friends or family said to you, hey, you don't seem to be your usual self, you seem to be stressed and irritable and sleepless, then that's a suggestion that you might benefit from seeing a mental health professional. Now, there, there are a bunch of treatments available for COVID-related emotional disorders, but it very much depends on the type of problem. So. I guess the first step is a self-assessment, asking yourself, well, do I have a problem? And then the next step is go and see your family doctor to get a good diagnosis. And I can't stress this enough. It's really important to get a good diagnosis from a mental health professional, starting with your primary care physician, to figure out what the problem is and what the problem is not. Because once you get a good idea of that, then you can decide on the treatment. It might be a a form of, let's say, cognitive behavioural treatment for post-traumatic stress disorder, or it might be antidepressant medication. It could be anything, but you really need to get a good diagnosis first.
0: And uh, w- and are there any special approaches for people who have either had COVID or had a loved one with COVID?
1: Um, there there aren't any special approaches that are different from treatment of. Um, emotional disorders during other sorts of stresses or outbreaks. For example, COVID-related post-traumatic stress disorder is still treated with, say, cognitive behaviour therapy for post-traumatic stress disorder. But there will be some wrinkles or complications in all of this. For example, it's not clear about how we optimally treat people who've developed long COVID with chronic fatigue and they have post-traumatic stress disorder. That combination, well, we will likely see more and more cases of that combo, but it's not clear how you treat it. Do you try and treat the chronic fatigue first, which can be challenging to treat, or do you start treating the post-traumatic stress disorder? Uh, Time will tell. I think more work needs to be done to, to figure out the optimal treatments for those complex clinical presentations.
0: Last question I want to ask you. There is a silver lining here. There have been some positives to come out of the pandemic, which have helped some people focus on um, some of the more positive aspects of life. What do we know about that?
1: Well, there's a phenomenon called post-traumatic growth, and that's been around since before COVID. And that's based on research showing that most people, after, say, a traumatic event like a flood or a tsunami or a wildfire, but for most people they don't just bounce back to where they were beforehand they grow as human beings in 2021 we asked ourselves well is this happening during COVID so my colleagues and I did some research and and we asked people uh, several thousand American and Canadian adults none of whom had had COVID we wanted a, a sample of non-COVID people who'd lived through COVID but not been infected we said we said have there been any silver linings for you during this pandemic and it was remarkable. Three quarters of our sample said, yes, there have been some benefits. Um, some people felt they were more resilient to stress as a result of going through COVID. Others felt they, were, uh, they had deepening ties to friends and family, deepening ties to the community, deepening spiritual values, or even a greater appreciation for the little things in life. So there, there were some definite silver linings and benefits to come out of this pandemic. Of course, the big question is, are those benefits gonna be enduring? For example, if um, people find they're, they're, um, they have a better appreciation for everything in life, is that going to last or are they going to take things for granted in the months after the pandemic has ended? I hope that we're able to take these positives and build on them for the, the months and years ahead. Because, uh, for example, if people's resilience has improved as a result of COVID, people are going to be in a way better position to um, tackling challenges ahead, such as challenges associated with climate change.
0: Well, that's uh, an optimistic note to end our conversation. Stephen Taylor, thank you so much for speaking with me.
1: Thanks so much, Brian.
0: Dr. Stephen Taylor is a clinical psychologist and professor in the Department of Psychiatry at the University of British Columbia. Here's your dose of smart advice. As restrictions are lifted, keep in mind that every person is different. Some will resume their pre-pandemic lives easily while others will approach the end of restrictions with a lot more anxiety. That may be especially true of those at greater risk of harm from the coronavirus, such as frail seniors and people who are immunocompromised, those who recovered from a serious bout of COVID, and those who have lost loved ones to the virus. Take as much time as you feel you need before doffing that mask or joining large indoor gatherings. For those who have already resumed their pre-pandemic lives, try not to criticize people who need more time seek professional help if staying extra cautious interferes with your lifestyle or your ability to work. The pandemic may have made some of us more anxious, but it has also made some people more resilient to stress and helped them forge closer connections with friends and family. If you have topics you'd like discussed or questions answered, tweet me at NightShiftMD, at CBC Podcasts, or at CBC White Coat, hashtag TheDoseCBC. Our email address is thedose at cbc.ca. You can find The Dose wherever you get your podcasts. If you like this episode, please go to your podcast provider and rate us five stars so more people can find us. This edition of The Dose was produced by Stephanie Dubois. Technical operations were by Lauda Antonelli. Our senior producer is Colleen Ross. The Dose wants you to be better informed about your health. If you're looking for medical advice, see your healthcare provider. I'm Dr. Brian Goldman until your next dose For more CBC podcasts go to
1: cbc.ca/podcasts